0: Well, today I'm looking at the fourth in this series of questions that I'm preaching through this August. And you may notice that today's sermon title isn't even a question, really. Today I want to look back with you at the subject of forgiveness, a topic that we spent quite some time on through the season of Lent. And I want to address two questions that were posed by you in the suggestion box just this past June. One, on the meaning and the nature of the ask, really, in that part of the Lord's Prayer that says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. A scripture that we looked at last week, if you remember. And second, a question or a querying observation, perhaps, about the ultimate goal and the ultimate good that Jesus means for us to aim at in taking on this practice. As you may know, and if you were around in the spring, like I just mentioned, I did preach a sermon series through Lent on the theme of forgiveness. When You, you can go back and watch that on YouTube if you like. And so instead of a question, I'm calling today's sermon Revisiting Forgiveness. What does that part of the Lord's Prayer mean? And what is Jesus after by making such a heavy demand on his disciples that they practice forgiveness in a radical way? In a way that would even set them apart and define them as conspicuous as their practice of forgiveness is called to be. When I preached on this through Lent, I took Paul's letter to the Romans as my guiding Scripture, if you recall, and begin where Paul begins his presentation of the whole of the Gospel. With the state of the world and of our very selves being such that forgiveness, or justification to use his term, is the only possible place to begin. And not just with human relationships, but with ourselves and especially in our relationships with God. The brokenness and the compounding dysfunction of our world and of our hearts have already long since gotten out of the gate. Paul reminded us there's no starting from scratch with one another. Only starting midstream. Or somewhere well beyond the wildfire of how that original sin has already set the world ablaze. We can't plant new trees in such an environment until we begin to extinguish those fires. And the path that we charted together through Romans through that series was one that tracked the way forward through a very different sort of terrain than humans tend to chart in their relationships or in their self-devised forms of spirituality. This one, this one beginning with our receiving of forgiveness. And going on from there to live more deeply into that, to internalize that, and to live outward from that in our lives and in our relationships. Where that series ended, though, if you remember, was where the practical reality of forgiveness on the ground gets very, very tough with the complexities and with the questions about being taken advantage of and about justice. Questions you'd be very familiar with if you've ever struggled your way through a difficult task of forgiving. That's where I want to begin today. That's where I hear the concern behind these questions. When I run into those occasions where Forgiveness in my life, in my heart, are seemingly overwhelming or impossible when I get so far down in it that I find myself a little bit lost and confused about how or whether I should continue going forward. How might I regain some perspective, some Christ-like perspective on why I should bother to pursue this practice in the first place? Jesus' word here today in Luke chapter 17 are as stark and as challenging as they are refreshingly clear and uncomplicated. If you want to be my disciples, he says in essence, you really do have to pursue forgiveness. And beyond convenient forgiveness or conventional forgiveness, you have to pursue it until it becomes radical. Forgiveness, principled forgiveness. Forgiveness that comes from a place that's rooted in your character as my disciples rather than from the whims of emotion or from expediency or even as a kind of therapeutic self-soothing. You must forgive, he says. Three simple words with no further conditions or exceptions. Now, as he articulates it here initially, it's tied together also with a practice that he calls quote-unquote rebuking the offender. He says it like this, if you turn back to that verse in verse 3. He says, if another disciple sins, presumably against you, you must rebuke the offender, and if there is forgiveness, or if there is repentance, you must forgive. There is not, in other words, this is not an abusive sort of forgiveness that Jesus is commissioning us into. Forgiveness here is one of the tools for setting things right. If there's an offense that's been committed, a wrong that's been done, Jesus demands of us, and it's not a gentle ask, and it's not even really an ask at all. Jesus demands of His disciples, first of all, that they give the offender an opportunity to make things right. And second of all, if they do, he demands that we practice forgiveness. You must forgive. Now I want to dwell over that for just a moment because a lot is being said there in that short little verse, I think. Both parts of that command of his there are a tough ask, aren't they? They ask a lot of us in terms of our maturity and of our trust and of how deep we're willing to go with one another in the bond of fellowship for the sake of peace and true reconciled community. You see, because that rebuke part asks that we make the person aware that a wrong has been done. And that's not easy. Rebuke is a hard word. It sounds confrontational and argumentative, and it's easier to just not do that. And rather, maybe bicker under our breath, or clam up and hold a grudge until Christ comes in final victory. Family histories are are famous for this sort of thing, and I'll tell you that on one side of my own family, they're legendary for the grudges that they carry. Family legend has it, in fact, that sometime way back in the 1970s, I think, there was a family reunion scheduled to happen one summer, as it did most summers. And this is on my dad's side of the family, and there's a huge number of them that lived down in Alabama where this was. And my great aunt, who usually hosts these things, had 14 kids of her own. And so when you factor in all the cousins and all the grandkids, and now the great and the great great grandkids, you can begin to picture how big of an event this has become. But there was a time back before all of these greats and great greats that this was a smaller scale affair. And back then, everyone would sign up for the dishes that you were going to bring to the family reunion. And there were some suggested choices and there were some definite staples, of course. Well, it turned out that in my family, one of those staples was peach cobbler. And the year before then, uh, before that year, the year in question, the person who brought the cobbler hadn't prepared it to everyone's satisfaction. And there were some behind-the-scenes comments made to that effect and some offline discussions had. And from there developed a targeted plan that when the sign-up sheet came out next year, that there'd be a coordinated effort to usurp cobbler responsibilities before the usual cobbler person could get on that list. And it happened. And there were questions. And it got out that this was a pre-planned sort of strategy and that there had been back-channeling discussion about the previous year's cobbler that gave rise to this coup. And when do you think, when do you think the next time these parties spoke to one another after all that came to light. Never. Never. They all died before they sorted it out. If you're not from the South like I am, let me just tell you a truth that I grew up with down in the Bible Belt. It's more polite. It's more genteel it is more in keeping with good manners to hold a grudge for the rest of your life rather than to do what Jesus says here in this verse that we're reading this morning. than to confront, to address, to rebuke the person who hurt you for the sake of making peace. Now that you may say that the offending party should have been the one to come forward first and offer the Apology, And of course, in a perfect world, you'd be right on that, of course. But notice that Jesus' word here is to the offended disciple. That they still have a job and an obligation towards peacemaking even though they are the offended party. That's the first hard calling here. To rebuke where rebuke doesn't mean yell at, so much as it means simply to address with the intention to resolve. How much better, how much more in service of God's kingdom's goals would it have been for Aunt so-and-so to say, hey, what you did and the way you did it really hurt me, and it was wrong. Rather than for them to go on to their graves never speaking to one another again. But then, supposing that the person hears you and then acknowledges what they've done and repents, Jesus says, then comes this mandate you must forgive. Which is also, notice, directed again to the offended party. Why such a start, even forceful, demand by Jesus here? It's my suspicion that he's all too aware here of that human tendency we have to want to bask in our offendedness for a while. You know, there's a strange, perverse sort of joy that we all sometimes take in being offended, isn't there? It's as though we ride high on the self-satisfaction of having those scales of justice tipping in our favor for a moment. And we'd rather have those scales tipping toward us than to go forward with absolving a sister or a brother that's trying to make amends. Jesus' word here, I believe, is a nudge to all of us. Don't dwell there don't dwell there. Don't dither long in that space. That's dangerous space to hang out because it's self-righteous space. So much better to move forward with making peace. So much better to get on with the forgiveness The stark command here, I think, is a prod forward to those who get stuck on that terrain. Keep going. You must get on with the forgiving. You know, when Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, I believe He's having us remind ourselves in our prayer life that we have to get on with it. And keep on moving toward forgiveness. And He would have us be reminded of that with the confession that we too are a people in need of forgiveness. Human life is such that the shoe will certainly be on the other foot on, at one point or another. No one gets beyond this life with a righteousness that's all their own. It comes from Christ as a gift. A gift that's offered as part of our own forgiveness. And the purpose behind Jesus' insistence that we pursue it is that we would grow and that we would grow closer to God's own heart in being a source for where healing, reconciling work is being done in the world around us. That we would grow in that work. Take part in that work. Be formed in that work through our own paying forward of what Christ has done for us. And when we run up against those roadblocks in our hearts and in our lives, we can be reminded that this practice of radical forgiveness is not about another person's worthiness or deservingness or about anything else in us other than what God desires to make of our own heart and of our world. God wants to transform your heart so that you will be a gracious person and a forgiving person. A source of healing and restored relationships in a challenged and broken world is Christ has come to renew this world. Let all of God's people say, Amen. Let us pray.